0: So we're working our way uh, through various passages in the book of Acts over a six-week period, thinking about our mission together as a church. And we've seen how the gospel has been advancing across various boundaries, geographical boundaries, cultural boundaries. And now we see the gospel advancing into the uh, uh, intellectual city of Athens. And so a remarkable passage. Uh, Let's uh, pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at it. Father, we thank you again for another opportunity to open your book. And we pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of Scripture would illuminate our minds and hearts today to behold wonderful things from it. For those who are not yet Christians, we pray that you would open up their heart as you did for Lydia when she was able to understand and believe. And for those in the room who are Christians, we pray that you would help us today to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his good name. Amen. Someone uh, once offered me a job some 20 years ago, I think it was and said, Tony, I want to change the world, and I want you to help me. That's the kind of thing a young guy likes to hear, but even then I was asking the question, is that realistic? A lot of people today hear the talk of world change as being triumphalistic, idealistic, and naive. Some question whether or not we should even try to change the world. Uh, Comedian Stephen Colbert, in a parody of the traditional commencement address, told Princeton grads, quote, You can change the world. Please don't do that, okay? Some of us like the way things are going right now. But Christians are expected to be part of a kingdom-advancing movement that does indeed change lives and consequently changes the world. And this idea is present in Acts chapter 17. Prior to Paul uh, arriving in Athens, he is in Thessalonica and then uh, in Berea. And we read in verse 6 that by the time Paul and his team had reached Thessalonica, uh, they had already, quote, turned the world upside down. New Testament scholar Kevin Rowe aptly entitles his commentary on Acts, World Upside Down. Some of you thought that was just a line in a uh, Hamilton musical, Um, but uh, it's a phrase right here embedded in Acts chapter 17, and we see that the primary way in which they were turning the world upside down was through the clear proclamation of Christ, beginning in the synagogue, working itself out into the marketplace, but it didn't come without challenges. It didn't come without hardships. From city to city, Paul is uh, enduring opposition. He later writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 2 of his first letter, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul is ministering in the middle of all kinds of opposition. And we read, prior to Athens, he goes from Thessalonica to Berea, and those who were opposed to him in Thessalonica chase him all the way to Berea. And now his companions sent him by boat to Athens. You see in the text in verse 14, that he leaves his brothers Timothy and Silas behind, and he by boat then goes to Athens. I wonder if his little cruise was healing and comforting. He needed some, some rest by the time he'd endured all that he endured. And so he goes to Athens, and Paul is now by himself. Now this was a majestic city, of course. Famous playwrights, historians, medical geniuses, philosophers, artists, sculptors, all once called Athens' home. In Paul's day, the the golden age of Athens was gone. That was the 5th century BC. But it was still a beautiful, influential, intellectual city. Now, in every Greek city, the highest point of elevation housed a temple to some god or goddess, usually the patron god of the city. High cities in Greek is called the Acropolis, the high city. And Athena was the patron goddess of the city. And her enormous statue set on top of the Acropolis. And you have seen, I'm sure, pictures today of the the Acropolis. And about 50 yards from the Acropolis, from Athena, was a little hill called the Areopagus or Mars Hill. The Greek god of war, Ares, corresponds to the Roman god of war, Mars. So it's Areopagus or Mars Hill. And today you can go to Mars Hill and you can see an inscription of this entire text uh, on, on, the, on one of those rocks there. And we've he- heard of churches even being called Mars Hill, haven't we? I haven't heard of an Areopagus church yet. Maybe someone wants to take up that name uh, at some point, but it hasn't, well, never about, I better shut up about Mars Hill. Um, the, the question that's now on our mind as Paul engages into this uh, influential city is what will he do? Tertullian once asked the famous question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? What does the, the, the city of philosophy have to do with the city of God's revelation? How will Paul engage the Athenians? There's a lot for us to learn here because you're already probably seeing some of the uh, transferable ideas with our own time. We live in one of the most intelligent cities in America, in Raleigh-Durham. But, but even though we have a lot of smart people, we still have a lot of unconverted people. And it's not uncommon, actually, to meet a very smart person who doesn't have a high level of knowledge of the Bible. I remember being on a, a, a trip with Donnie one time on a plane, and, and he was talking to a lady, a very smart lady in the medical community, who had never heard of the book of Job before. And the idea that the Bible had an overarching storyline was a foreign idea to her. Again, very intelligent, but not an, a good understanding of, of the Bible. How do we engage these kinds of people? How do we engage this secular world with the unchanging gospel. Well, let's look at this text in four parts. First of all, what Paul saw. Secondly, what he felt. Thirdly, where he went. And fourthly, what he said. Saw, felt, went, said. What did Paul see? Verse 16. you notice in the text here, it says that Paul is waiting for his companions. I think that's an important word for us, that Paul is not on a strategically planned mission trip. As we said last week, that the will of God often takes us on many twists and turns, and Paul has now arrived here in Athens because persecution has, has pushed him out there, and he's by himself. What will Paul do when he's in this city? You know, Paul could just chill. He's just waiting on his guys, after all. He could just enjoy some Greek pastries, uh, a Greek salad. which is just called a salad over there. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, there are a number of things that Paul could be doing in Athens that would be a whole lot of fun. But what attracts Paul when he first goes to the city, what gets his attention is not the beauty of the city or the food of the city. It's the idolatry in the city. It says that he saw that the city was full of idols. The marketplace was lined with idols. Someone once said, it's easier to find a God in Athens than a person. The phrase full of idols is rendered in other uh, translations as being under idols or smothered in idols or flooded in idols. That was the city of Athens. Now, you and I won't go out to the grocery store or the restaurants today and see physical idols, most likely, but idols in our day are just as present, even though they might not be as in your face as it was there in Athens. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idol factory, that we are geniuses in inventing idols. This weekend, as many of you know, Pastor Tim Keller went to be with Jesus. He's influenced us in so many ways, and he has a great book called Counterfeit Gods, which is a book on idolatry. And he says this, what is an idol? It is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And that, my friend, can be a number of things, can't it? Sometimes it can be even good things. But it also can be sinful things. It can be worldly things. In fact, Michael, who was just up here, was telling me a story about a guy who was not a Christian yet, and he was going through the Gospel of John with another guy, and they got to about chapter 5, and he just stopped showing up to the Bible study, and they couldn't find him, and they eventually bumped into him at the coffee shop, and he said, I came to the point that I realized if Jesus is to be Lord of my life, then I probably can't get the boat that I want. That his, his whole life and aspiration and planning was all about a yacht, And that's what he wanted. And you think about that, like idols can be all sorts of things. In the book of Exodus, they make a golden calf out of their own gold and worship it. And the psalmist says in Psalm 106, they exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Don't worship God, worship an ox that eats grass. And you see, that is the history of humanity. We make bad trades. We exchange the one who satisfies us and has come to save us for created things. And this disturbs Paul. Paul sees this, doesn't he? And by the way, if you're a Christian, one of the things that's happened in our conversion, Paul says to the Thessalonians, is that we've turned from idols to the living God. Praise God if he has done that for you. He's opened up your eyes to see the reality of Jesus and that idols will never satisfy. So if you're looking to anything to give you what only Jesus can give you, salvation fulfillment joy hope that is an idol that needs to be put to death that's what he sees he sees the whole world differently he sees Athens Christianly and it's possible to simultaneously look at the world and see both beautiful things and broken things and there are beautiful things to behold in creation beautiful things to behold in society but there's also a lot of spiritual idolatry And so what what happens as Paul is just here waiting on his companions, secondly, what he felt. It says that his spirit was provoked, troubled, distressed within him. The Greek version of the Old Testament uses this word to describe how God feels about idolatry. In English, you'll read it a lot in the Old Testament that Israel provoked God, right? Provoked him to anger because they turned away from him to an idol, In other words, Paul is just feeling the jealousy, the holy jealousy of God. He cannot fathom the fact that Jesus is not being worshipped in Athens the way he should be worshipped in Athens. That there's not a church proclaiming the gospel in Athens. And so he can't just sit there idly. His spirit is burdened, right? His zeal is obvious. It's also noteworthy to notice that Paul doesn't just take sledgehammers to the idols, Physically start tearing them down. He actually will reason and listen and talk and dialogue and debate. But he can't do nothing. He has to engage because his spirit is provoked. And I want to say to you that and say to myself, to be like Paul means not only sharing his doctrine, it means also sharing his distress. To not just have his theology, but to have his burden. To see idolatry in our neighbors, our friends, our family, and to not be moved that they are not worshiping the Lord. That, well, that's a problem in our hearts, isn't it? And that's where the problem with the failure to witness usually comes from. It's in our hearts. We should have the longing of the psalmist in Psalm 67, let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's what's wrong with our music today. It's that not enough people are singing it. Not enough people are singing the praise due to Jesus. John Stott in his uh, commentary on Acts asks the question, what what are the motivations for mission? The motivations for witness. And he mentions three. He says one is just a motivation of of obedience. Jesus has given us the great commission, therefore we go. He notes another motivation, which would be compassion, that we simply have a care and a compassion for people that also moves us. But he notes the highest incentive being a zeal or jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, God has promoted him to the supreme place of honor in order that every knee and tongue should acknowledge his lordship. And whenever he has denied his rightful place in people's lives, we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. He says, as Henry Martin exp- uh, expressed it as he was a missionary to Muslims in Persia, I could not endure existence if Jesus is not glorified. It would be hell to me if it were to be always dishonored. We want Jesus to be honored where He's not named and where He's not known in the lives of people who do not know Him and do not name Him as their Lord. And so may the Lord stir up in us a holy fire to see Jesus exalted where He's not exalted. That's what Paul feels. Thirdly, where Paul goes, where he went. Three places are noted here in Athens. He goes to the synagogue, he goes to the marketplace, and he goes to the Areopagus. The latter two are similar in that he's going to engage all sorts of thinking. The first, the synagogue, is a restricted place for the Jews. And you really admire Paul in the book of Acts, how he's able to engage the religious people in the synagogue, but also mix it up in the marketplace and talk to those who have all sorts of different worldviews. I call him, he's a two-way evangelist, the way uh, Shoei Atana is for... uh, the Angels, a two-way baseball player. There's your baseball reference for the week. Um, he's this generation's Babe Ruth. He's both the pitcher and top the leaderboard as a hitter. Nobody does that. He is a remarkable uh, player. But I don't want to get sidetracked. Paul is a remarkable evangelist in that he's able to go into the Jewish synagogue and point people to Jesus, but then go into the marketplace of ideas, even into the intellectual center on Mars Hill, and commend Christ. So there's a lot for us to learn by what he's doing. We live in a land of great spiritual diversity, don't we? You can meet people that have no knowledge of the Bible, no knowledge of basic Christian concepts, even though, again, they may be very educated. Occasionally when I'm listening to uh, sports talk radio, some kind of theological subject will come up, and it always amazes and amuses (laughs) and uh, astonishes me how little is known about very basic concepts. Or if you've ever been to a trivia night at a restaurant or something and the Bible comes up. And just the lack of knowledge. But then you also will meet people who understand certain Christian concepts, but they don't believe. There's understanding, but not belief. And those are two different conversations we're having, right? One of just trying to explain the stuff. (laughs) And the other, trying to get people to believe on Christ. I overheard a lady in a restaurant two weeks ago, downtown Raleigh talking to her friend and she was kind of mocking her parents faith and she said Jesus says sell all you have and come after me she said what do you call that she said that's a cult it's just a very old cult I didn't have any chance to to chat with her I wanted to talk with her for a moment that a cult leader has never risen from the dead but but Jesus has but there there's a there's a story of an individual who who actually got some facts right (laughs) has understanding you might call that a synagogue ministry but not belief you've got other kind of marketplace ministry where you engage people wherever it might be that don't have basic concepts and we learn from Paul how to be this two-way evangelist this versatile missionary so first we see in the synagogue that Paul is engaging those who happen to be there and from verse 7 or previous text in Thessalonians we see certain verbs that are used that express what Paul was doing, explaining, reasoning, proving that Jesus is the Christ. It's a word for us that if, when we're ministering, even in religious contexts, we keep talking about Jesus. We don't assume that everybody who's turned up is actually a Christian. And so we keep the focus on Christ. And then we see him in the marketplace, in the agora. Everybody went to the marketplace. And it seems as though Paul is sort of using the Socratic method in Socrates' city, of dialogue, and question, and counter-questioning, and so on. And that also is instructive for us, as sometimes what we need are good questions to ask people. My friend uh, Ryan Kwan, was uh, he's a pastor in the Bay Area, and he was uh, meeting with a professor from Stanford, and he told Ryan, you are the smartest Christian I've ever met. And Ryan said, I've never said anything intelligent in my whole life. All I was doing was asking him questions dialoguing, discussing. And Paul here doesn't keep his faith to himself. Our faith is a public faith. But he doesn't start a riot. He starts a conversation. Sometimes his conversations lead to riots. (laughs) But he's in there, chopping it up, as they say, talking to those who just happen to be there. And this is a reminder that you and I need a marketplace ministry. We cannot expect unbelievers to turn up to this church as the primary way we do evangelism. Most unbelievers aren't waking up today saying, you know what, I heard they had good music at Amaga Day. I, I heard man, the, 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 the coffee was amazing. That's not going to bring them. They can always find better things. Most of them, if they come, are actually brought by a believer, believing friend. The reminder that we must engage them where they are, in the marketplace, in the workplace, in the neighborhoods, in the shops, in the gyms, and so on. But then there's another marketplace ministry mentioned in verse 18 as Paul begins to dialogue with the intellectuals. I love that they call Paul a babbler, don't you? What does this babbler wish to say? They essentially call him like a, a pseudo-intellectual. Babbler meant a seed picker. And they, they liken Paul to like a, a, a bird that's picking up an idea here, picking up an idea there. These philosophers valued a coherent worldview And they don't think Paul has one. They really misunderstand Paul. If you notice in the text, it says in verse 18, that Jesus is preaching, or he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They, They have associated resurrection with an actual person, like a female goddess. So they are really misunderstanding Paul because they're hearing him through their Greek lenses, hearing him through God and goddesses' language. But to their credit, they invite Paul to their, their little get together at Mars Hill. And they say, Why don't you come and explain yourself? So we, we hear, read here that there are two particular philosophies present Epicurean philosophy and Stoic philosophy. I don't want to spend too much time here, but just summarize these views for a moment. The Epicureans were materialists, uh, they believed that everything came from particles of matter, and they did not believe in an afterlife. It'll be important for Paul's speech. Uh, They didn't deny the existence of the gods, but they didn't think the gods were uh, uh, involved in history and that they were indifferent to humanity. So they didn't believe in God's providence, uh, and they really strove for a life that avoided pain and uh, avoided discomfort. Now that's present in our day, as people will try to get you to be free from the idea of God free from the idea of God's providence, free from the idea of death and the afterlife, and just pursue pleasure apart from pain. That's very present in what we uh, call today the in N-O-N-E-S, those who, uh, when they fill out their paperwork, say that they have no religious affiliation, one of the fastest-growing groups in society, no idea of God, no thought of afterlife, no thought of providence, just pursue pleasure, avoid pain. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists. They contended that the physical universe is empowered by a reasoning force known as logos, which connects the divine with the material. They confused God with the world's soul, and they thought everything was determined by fate. And to live a good life, you live by reason. They would have acknowledged the idea of God's nearness, though not the way Paul mentions it, but reject the notion that history was going somewhere. Today we hear the phrase, K Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. That captures the spirit of the Stoics. Just sort of grin and bear it. There's nothing you can do about it. Both worldviews were hopeless and quite meaningless. And Paul addresses, he goes to war on Mar, at Mars Hill on these ideas. So let's look at what Paul says finally, number four. This is just an outline of Paul's speech as are the other speeches in the book of Acts. The, the normal speech at the Areopagus lasted like two to three hours. This is not like a sermon in corporate worship where you're going to have a couple songs and a creed or whatever, and then it's like, you're up. This is more like, uh, next, uh, we've heard an Epicurean, we've heard a Stoic, we've heard a guy from uh, the Far East. Now, why don't the babbler come and address us? And so Paul goes up to the Areopagus and he's, he's trying to respond to their question, what do these things mean? And we read in verse 21 that the Athenians loved many new things. And they didn't really need a new thing. They needed the old message. They needed new life. We've often said around here, we have a new church, but we have an old message. We have nothing new. The gospel is unchanging. But Paul knows that this old message needs to be applied to them in particular ways. And so he gives the gospel in the grand story of the Bible. He shows them the reasonableness of the faith, the exclusivity of the faith, and the necessity of repenting and believing. And you could trace the outline of this speech in six parts. He talks about God as creator, God as sustainer, God as the ruler of the nations, God being knowable, God being the father of humanity, and God being the judge and rescuer. First, you notice in verse 24, God is creator. He made the world, he says, and everything in it. This stands in contrast to the Epicureans and Stoics, because Paul is saying that God is both distinct from his creation and also involved in it. And the fact that he is creator of everything suggests that he cannot be contained, verse 24b, in a shrine or a temple. You know, even when Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he acknowledges that God cannot be domesticated. You cannot confine the Creator. You cannot lock up the Creator. The world is the theater of God's revelation of His glory. That's why Bob Inc. put it well, in an absolute sense, therefore, nothing is atheistic. You might suppress the truth of God's existence, but you can't escape it because He's creator of all that you see. One persecuted Christian was threatened one time that if they did not stop worshiping, that uh, they would have their building destroyed. And this Christian responded, you can pull down our steeples, but you cannot pull down the stars. <laughs> God is not confined to a building. It's made by Him. It wasn't made in China, like everything that we, we see. <laughs> right? I remember as a kid in Kentucky, I was like, how did this get to me? It was made in China. Uh, but what is said about creation is one big stamp made by God he's creator secondly he's sustainer verse 25 again this stands in contrast to the competing philosophies he's dealing with God is intimately involved in creation he's sustaining it he's sustaining our heartbeat this very moment God doesn't need us we need him we are dependent upon him God doesn't need food he doesn't need air. He doesn't need sleep. We need him. And he's saying to these guys God is the sustainer of all of it. Thirdly, he is the sovereign ruler of the nations. Verse 26. He asserts there that God has taken special interest in humanity and that mankind has come from one man, and that being Adam. And it's amazing that all of the diverse ethnic groups that are beautifully observed in society originate from this one man. Not only that, but as the sovereign ruler, He has determined the times and boundaries of their existence. This speaks of God being sovereign over both history and geography. He has determined where I live And in what time period I'm alive. And that's fascinating. That's how sovereign he is. So when you read stats today like Raleigh's the second fastest growing city in America, or I read yesterday in U.S. News and World Report that it was named the third best city in America to live in. You can interpret that in a number of different ways. But I see that as God's providence. That God is bringing people to this area because he is the sovereign ruler of the nations and there will be opportunity for them to hear our witness and believe. Well, God is also knowable. God is not only this one who reigns over time and geography, but he says in verse 26 that he's put you in these particular places, in these dwelling places, verse 27, that you would seek after God, perhaps feel your way toward him and find him, because he's not far from us. Again, the Epicureans viewed God as being detached and uninvolved, but Paul says, no, he's made you, that you might seek him. You could actually know him. And you see the doctrine of sin that is, that is uh, kind of undergrounding the phrase, perhaps they might reach out to him and find him. The idea is they're having a hard time finding him. It's the image of a blind person groping, or a blindfolded person groping after God. There's an awareness that he exists. But how might you know him? So they're trying to reach out and feel for him. One commentator has pointed out that the word here for feel is used by the Greek poet Homer in the well-known story of the Cyclops, where this giant one-eyed Cyclops captures Odysseus and his men, but Odysseus got the Cyclops drunk and then blinded him with a sharp stake just drives a stake into his eye. And then Odysseus is trying to get out of the cave with his men, but it's difficult because the Cyclops was groping after them, trying to find them. And he says that is the image here, that because of sin we are blind, and we need God to open up our eyes. We know he's there, but we need divine grace. And if he's opened up your eyes, you should praise him today. He's created us to know him. This God is knowable fifth he's the father of humanity here paul shows his cultural intelligence quoting two of the poets of his day showing that how they caught a glimpse by god's common grace of some particular truths paul sort of baptizes the truths saying for in him we live and move and have our being implying this to the nearness of god and the sustaining power of god and then by quoting this other author for we are his offspring he reads that in light of the image of God, that we are made in the image of God. Therefore, being made in his image, verse 29, he says, it would be utter folly to worship something made by human hands. You're made to worship this God, not something that is created by human hands. Well, finally, Paul then goes to God being the judge and rescuer, verses 30 to 31. He says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. So Paul takes this from a philosophical, theological discussion to a matter of personal responsibility. That you must do something, he says, with what I have just said. And he notes here this sort of decisive turning point that has happened in redemptive history. And that God has fixed today, verse 31 in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, namely Jesus. And he has shown us that that is going to happen because he's raised him from the dead. So think about this. Paul starts with creation. He ends with resurrection and then final judgment. He tells the Athenians that God has committed judgment to his son Jesus, and he's appointed a fixed day in which he will judge the world in perfect righteousness. But if they will repent, this judge can save them, rescue them. Salvation comes through this one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died. We come from the one man Adam, but we must turn to this man, Jesus, to save us. So that's the clear calling in Scripture, to repent and believe the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, that's the calling from our text today to you, to repent and believe. Now, at this point, Paul's speech is halted. It seems like they're sort of tracking along until he gets to this idea of judgment, until this idea of exclusive salvation in Jesus. And before we look at the response to the sermon in the final couple of verses, I think it's no, worth noting four things that Paul has just done in this speech that are transferable for us. First of all, I want you to notice Paul's model of consistency. Even though he's not on a strategically planned mission trip, he's still on mission. He he never takes a break. I've said before that I don't think there's ever a perfect time to do evangelism. Like if I were waiting on my life having no drama before I shared the gospel, I would never share the gospel. (laughs) Right? And, And so just realize that. I mean, Paul here is beat up. He's by himself, you know. But what he saw provokes him. He has to do something. There's a consistency here. Secondly, there's something to note about his comprehensiveness. Now, granted, Paul is a genius, right? He's brilliant. You may be saying, I can't identify with him. Yeah, I think you can. What, what I mean by comprehensiveness is Paul is basically just starting with creation and taking it to the end. He, he's able to share, show the whole story of the Bible, which is very important uh, for today. As a lot of people don't have the basic framework to even understand Jesus. They don't have the pre-story, right? So often our presentation of the gospel starts with you are a sinner. But there is no creation in Imago Dei that, that's prior in the story, right? And so it's important that we, we learn, we step back, and we're able to articulate it as best we can in our own language the true story of the whole world that culminates in Jesus. Thirdly, there is contextualization. Big word simply means being able to speak to your context, being able to speak to the people that you're addressing. I see Paul doing this by a number of uh, phrases in this text when he says, I see this, or I perceive this. I saw an inscription, he says, to an unknown God. He's aware of his audience. He's not adjusting the truth. He's applying the truth to the people that he's talking to. This is being a wise witness, being a loving witness. You want to speak to the people you're addressing wisely because you love them. You want them to understand uh, the gospel. He quotes their poets, doesn't he? Um, Today, we're probably not walking around quoting poets, though you might if you're into that and you're talking to people who like poetry, but a lot of today's philosophies and a lot of the high intellectual thought trickles down into pop music and pop film which is where a lot of people live. And while we don't need to be immersed in that world necessarily, we do need to be somewhat aware of what people are hearing, what they're believing, how people are being discipled every day by the world's poets today so that we can establish sort of a point of contact with them and then bring a point of conflict to them with the gospel, showing how their worldview collides with the gospel and how only Jesus can resolve that stott beautifully puts it wherever we begin with people we shall end with jesus christ who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations so wherever we begin we end with jesus and then i want you to notice paul's courage paul didn't go blow up the city nor did he do nothing he engages them and this takes courage to walk up in front of the, you're the only Christian there, and you've got all these competing philosophies, you're not among friends, and he shares the exclusive salvation in Jesus in the face of these philosophies. He talks about the fact that Jesus rose bodily to a group of people who don't believe that's a reality. He talks about the fact that history is going somewhere to a group of philosophers who denied that idea. There's great courage, spirit-given courage. So, how does it all end? Well, we see in the text, verses 32 to 34, there are three responses to Paul's message. And I would venture to say, when we share the good news, we will experience these three as well. Some mocked Paul. We should not be surprised if that happens to us. Some want to hear more. We'll hear that sometimes. It takes a lot of time sometimes with people. And then some actually believed some men believed and joined paul and a lady named uh, damaris also believes and we'll experience these same things today now sometimes people are critical of paul's speech in athens i don't think we should be some people have even said you know paul doesn't mention the cross and that's when he gets to corinth he finally figured it out and uh, resolved to know nothing but jesus and him crucified And so he had more success in Corinth than he had in Athens. But again, I would just say this is an outline of the speech. I don't think Paul is talking about the resurrection apart from the cross. Uh, Others have said, well, Paul was a failure at Athens. I wish I could fail this well. Don't you? (laughs) I mean, there are no Christians when he's there on on this hill, and by the time he leaves, some people have believed in Jesus. That's a good day, right? Was it Ice Cube who said I, today was a good day? I didn't have to use my AK? This was a good day when... Uh, <laughs> you didn't think you'd get all this in one sermon, did you? Um, it's not in my notes. It just comes out of the heart. Uh, <laughs> this is a, when one person believes that's a good day. And he got more than one. And he's all by himself. He doesn't, doesn't have his boys around him. But he's consistent. He's comprehensive. He's courageous and the Lord saves people in Athens because the gospel breaks down all of these barriers. It transcends. It goes now into this intellectual capital. So we need not fear when you're around smart people. We need not fear when you're sent off to Washington, D.C. or you're in the university. No, the gospel is the transcending glorious truth that is for the world. We proclaim him everywhere to everyone. And from this passage, we see, one, what we should see. We see beauty in the world, and we see brokenness in the world. What we should feel, a longing for Jesus to be glorified. Where we should go, everywhere, to the religious places and the marketplaces. And what we should say, the true story of the whole world, Culminating in the reign of King Jesus. So let's continue what our brothers and sisters started in the book of Acts as they turned the world upside down by proclaiming Christ to everyone, everywhere. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for the truthfulness of it and the timeliness of it. I pray that it would embolden us in our faith this week as we have opportunity in the marketplace in the world of ideas, uh, in our workplaces, wherever it might be, to uh, boldly and compassionately commend Jesus to people who desperately need him. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for freeing us from idolatry and giving us, uh, putting us uh, in this new reality where we can say with Paul, Christ is our life, and when he appears, we will be with him in glory. And we think about all that you have done for us now in the Lord's Supper and all that you have for us. And I pray that gratitude would arise in our hearts as we continue to think upon you. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.